You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 4. We're thinking this morning about what it means to be a Christ-honoring church. A Christ-honoring church. So let's read beginning at verse 10. We'll read down to the end of the section, Philippians 4, beginning at verse 10. This morning we will look at verses 10 through 14. Tonight we'll look at verses 15 through 20. We read beginning at verse 10. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, For I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, But I seek the fruit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will fulfill all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's ask our God's help and blessing in this next hour. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you. For this time now, gathered with my church family around your word, I pray that you would be at work in this next hour, in and through me and in our hearts as we listen, so that your good work, your lasting work, your eternal work is accomplished in our hearts and lives. We gather today as your church, we need this time of preaching, we need what takes place through the unique ministry of the Word preached. We need our souls to be fed. We need the kind of sustaining of our faith that you use this ministry to, as a means to accomplish. We need these things. So we are here as your people, but we also are mindful there are people with us that don't know you. And we, your people, long for the salvation of, of others. And so we pray for anyone hearing me today who doesn't know your Son that this might be the day of their salvation. 
Encourage your church, sustain your church, correct your church, Lord. You know where we stand in need of correction in light of the verses that we'll look at today. And so would you do all of your good work in our hearts according to your perfect knowledge of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Healthy churches honor Jesus. We recognize the exalted nature of His person. It all begins with believing the truth about Christ Himself. But then knowing the truth about Christ, we exalt Him as we acknowledge Him as the head of His church. He is the head of the church. We acknowledge Him in in His offices. We acknowledge Him as the chief shepherd of the church. We acknowledge Him as the great high priest of the church. We acknowledge Him as the Lord of the church. Churches that exalt Christ are not seeking to do self-styled ministry. Rather, they seek to carry out submissive ministry. Taking note of what God has revealed in His Word, we submit to His Word. It is the will of Christ that we desire to see done in His church. How do you explain such churches? Well, obviously, the ultimate way they are explained is salvation, regeneration. It is the Lord's saving work in your life that now makes you a Christ-honoring person. It is the Lord's saving work in our lives that now makes this a Christ-honoring congregation. So it's all ultimately explained by salvation. But as you think about how that functions, how that gets lived out, you think about philosophy of ministry, you think about structure of ministry, you think about the things that we do as a local church in ministry, how is the Christ-honoring nature of it maintained? How do we stay in the right lane? There are many things we could say about that. No church honors Christ that isn't growing in its knowledge of Christ. We honor Him as we know Him better and better. No church honors Christ that doesn't cherish Christ, counting Him to be as our greatest treasure. No church honors Christ that doesn't prioritize Christ, He must have first place in everything in the life of His church. But this morning I want to talk about one non-negotiable that will be present in every Christ-honoring church. And I want to zero in on this quality because I think it is rarely mentioned. Of all the things we would talk about that would characterize a Christ-honoring church, I almost never hear this one mentioned in that kind of context. You're not going to find this in the nine marks of a healthy church. You're not going to find this in in so many other things that are, are good and helpful as we think about what it means to be healthy churches. This one doesn't get mentioned very often. Before I state it in the way that I want to spend our time thinking about it, let me let me say it to you this way. We cannot honor Christ while entertaining idols. Christ will not be honored in a church unless it's fleeing idolatry. Colossians 3.5 says this, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Interesting, isn't it? 
that Paul mentions all of these sins that we would automatically identify with idolatry, but then he ends it by talking about greed. And he equates it with idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. John MacArthur commented and said, greed, literally, this term means to have more. It is the insatiable desire to gain more, especially of things that are forbidden. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, James chapter 4, which amounts to idolatry. When people engage in either greed or the sexual sins Paul has cataloged, they follow their desires rather than God's, in essence, worshiping themselves, which is idolatry. I want more. I'm not satisfied. I need more. Wanting things in some cases that are forbidden, wanting things in other cases that are not inherently sinful, but it's not what God has assigned to me right now. But my heart is not satisfied, you see, where I, where I am. I still want the something more, even though it's not technically off limits. God hasn't chosen to give it to me. And so I'm not satisfied in the Lord Himself. I'm not satisfied in Christ. I'm not satisfied with God's will. And all of that can be summed up in the word contentment. What will characterize a Christ-honoring church? A Christ-honoring church will be a church characterized by contentment. In contrast to the desire for something we don't have, in contrast to the desires for things we should not have is contentment. Content with what God gives us. Content without what God has chosen not to give us. Content regardless of our current circumstances. Content with what God has identified as sufficient. This is what I've given you for your life and for ministry, and it's enough for you and our hearts say, yes, Lord, it is enough. It is enough. Content in every circumstance and season of congregational life. If you're in the church for any length of time, you recognize churches go through seasons of life and ministry. Some of those seasons are really hard. Some of those seasons seem like a little taste of heaven on this side of heaven. But whether you're in those times that are sweet or in those times that your flesh would want to escape, contentment is your heart is still satisfied in the Lord. Content when it seems like we're flourishing. Content when it seems like we're withering. Content knowing that we can never do better than to simply trust and obey. We can never do better than to simply strive to be faithful. Regardless of what area of life where you're struggling with contentment right now, do you, do you really believe that? Do you believe that you can't do better in your current circumstances than to simply trust the Lord and obey Him? Not trying to somehow figure it out and work it out according to your own ideas and your own plans, but rather what you're striving for is to be submissive to the Lord and faithful to the Lord and to His Word right where you are. Content when people celebrate us. Content when people condemn us. 
Because in neither circumstance are we aiming at the praises of people. We're aiming to please the Lord. And so if you celebrate me, I give God thanks for any good thing He's done in and through me. If you condemn me, my identity is not wrapped up in what you think of me because I'm not living my life to please you. I'm living my life to please Christ. That's contentment. And that's what you find in any and every church where Jesus is truly being exalted. It is a church characterized by contentment. That produces observable fruits. Where a church is characterized by contentment, the fruits of contentment will be there. Let me just mention a few. Where there is contentment, there is the fruit of simplicity in ministry. Not ministry that is simplistic, but ministry that is simple. Free from the clutter of human invention. Free from the clutter of worldly ideologies and strategies that men take hold of because they want something more. In the name of reaching their goals and accomplishing their visions, they begin to reach outside the Word of God and come up with their own ideas as to how they can accomplish these things. Well, when a church is full of contentment, those things go away. Believing in the sufficiency of what God has given us for ministry, we simply do what God has told us to do. And we keep doing what God has told us to do. And so we pray and we exhort and we study and we love and we serve. We just do the things God has revealed in His work and we trust Him to accomplish what only He can accomplish. Simplicity shows up in the church that is contented. The fruit of peacefulness. Peacefulness. We are at rest in God and His Word and the work that He has assigned to us. We're content with what He's given us to do. I truly believe that on display in the evangelical world of our time is a mass of discontentment. As men who are meant to shepherd the church right where they are have their eyes and hearts on the ends of the earth trying to figure out a way to have a larger footprint, trying to figure out a way how to have more influence, constantly looking beyond the field that God has assigned to them because they're not satisfied with where their feet are at. Where a church is characterized by contentment, what the Lord has assigned to us is enough. In fact, it's too much because there's no one adequate for it. We don't want more. We want to be faithful with what God has given us. And if He chooses to give us more, we want to be faithful with that. But whatever He chooses to assign to us, that is enough for us. The fruit of unity. Where there is contentment in Christ, we are free from competition with each other. How much jealousy exists in the name of Christian ministry? How much jealousy exists in the life of the church? Where your heart is satisfied with Christ, you're not living a life of one comparing himself with another. We're all striving to the same end, and that is to exalt Christ 
by living lives that are being conformed to His image. We're not in competition with each other about that. We, we want to help each other to that end. And so there's not jealousy over things like spiritual giftedness. There's not jealousy over things like ministry assignments. If the Lord chooses you to exalt His Son in a way that I once wished I could do, but He's not chosen to let me do it. He's chosen you to do it. I am now able to be your biggest cheerleader because what is upmost in my heart is not self-exaltation, but Christ's exaltation. And if He uses you to do it, His Son is being exalted. And that's my desire and your desire. Where there is contentment in a church, it is a thankful church. It is a joyful church. But as we'll be reminded in our verses this morning, this is not something automatic for Christians. Contentment. It's something you have to learn. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Contentment is something learned over a lifetime. It's something that, though you may be able to say in some sense you've learned it, you are still learning it. Always. Until one day your heart is satisfied by the sight of your Savior. Learning to have your heart rest in Him. It is a quality experienced indirectly. It's not something you get to directly. You don't just say, well, today I want to be content, so automatically then you are content. In fact, you can be telling yourself to be content and be battling with being discontent. It's indirect in the way we experience it. That is, it is learned in the furnace of God-ordained circumstances that will sift you and purify you. God teaches you to rest in Him by putting you in circumstances where you must rest in Him. And in that way, our God is teaching us the vanity of putting our hope in things that are not our ultimate hope. Putting your hope in material things, putting your hope in positions, whether it be in work or some other realm, putting your hope in people, ultimately the Lord weans us off of that kind of misplaced dependence through circumstances wherein we learn that only He can ultimately satisfy our hearts. Anything else is idolatry, you see. So we can just state it simply by saying this, we will never honor Christ in His church if we are not satisfied with Christ in His church. We will never honor Christ in His church if we are not satisfied with Christ in His church. This is experienced, by the way, one believer at a time. If we talk about a church characterized by contentment, what that is going to mean is that the individuals whose faces I'm looking at right now are people characterized by contentment. One soul at a time, the church becomes a church characterized by contentment. Two main points we'll look at this morning in verses 10 through 14. First of all, I want you to see Paul's joy declared. Paul's joy declared, verse 10. But I rejoiced 
in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Verse 11, not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul is bringing this letter to a close. You can see that by its location in the book of Philippians. It's at the end, bringing his letter to a close. But before he finishes the letter, there's a matter that he has to attend to. He has hinted at this all the way back in chapter 1. Philippians 1 verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. When I think about you in my prayers, I am rejoicing because I am able to reflect on how you have helped me in gospel ministry from the very beginning of my ministry there among you until this very day. In other words, I want to I, I give God thanks, but I also want to give you thanks, which is what he does now. Now he addresses this directly. This is a thank you at the end of the book of Philippians. The Philippians, by the hands of Epaphroditus, delivered material support to Paul. You see that in verse 18. <clears throat> but I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I've been filled having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. So the Philippians by Epaphroditus send an offering. Paul is in a Roman prison. He is surviving on the most basic kind of provisions. He's existing in a state of want from a material point of view. He faces an impending trial before Roman authorities. And though he thinks it unlikely, there is the possibility even of execution. And in the midst of those circumstances, he meets with friendship. He meets with love. He meets with concern on the part of the Philippian church. Because Epaphroditus has arrived with their gift, and that man himself is a gift to Paul. Must have been such an encouragement for Paul when he arrives. And so he, Paul, wants to say thank you for this. And his thank you is, is fascinating because it's rich with instruction. This is a thank you that is more than a thank you. Paul the Apostle, doing what he always does, he takes even a thank you and he turns it into a teaching opportunity. And what he wants to do is to model for them what it means to be content in the Lord. <clears throat> the, the instruction is a great reminder to us that salvation is something supernatural. It is eternal life. It is fellowship with God and His Son. So that in salvation there is the presence of genuine faith. And where there is genuine faith, there is a unique worldview there's a unique view both of life and the meaning of life and the end of life. There is an eternal perspective that is possible where salvation has come. It exists where salvation has come. And that perspective, that eternal perspective, allows for unique acts of service. Because salvation is supernatural, what you then see saved people do is supernatural. And in these verses, Paul notes three things that are occurring that are supernatural in, in nature. There's a Christian kind of giving. 
people give, lost and saved. Today in this world, there will be lost people who give gifts to other lost people. You don't have to be saved to give, but there is a kind of giving that is unique to Christians, that only Christians really engage in. And there's a way to receive gifts that is unique to Christianity. The way we see the gift, the way we see the giver, unique to Christianity. And as a result, when it comes to ministry, there's a unique partnership that can exist, a unique fellowship in giving and receiving that exists. Paul is anxious to teach them about contentment because he's also teaching them about giving and about receiving and about fellowship in ministry. Running through it all is this idea that his heart is satisfied in the Lord. So he declares his joy as he does so. Notice he's recalling something. I rejoice. Not I'm rejoicing, but I rejoice in the Lord. That is, when Epaphroditus arrived, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Good to remember a few things here. It's been several years since Paul was in Philippi, probably around 10 years. The church at Philippi was the first church planted in Europe. A church that existed in the Macedonian area, Acts chapter 16. And so Paul begins in Philippi, he had trouble there, real trouble there. He goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, and he met with conflict there also. 1 Thessalonians 2.2 says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, Paul now writing to the Thessalonians, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So he goes from trouble in Philippi to trouble in Thessalonica. When he's in Thessalonica, the Philippian believers, the church, doesn't forget him. They send him help. This is what he says in verse 15. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my need. So here is Epaphroditus coming to him in his prison situation. And he says in verse 10, I rejoiced when he came, recalling how you have loved me before, how you have ministered to my needs before. This is a joy that involves recollection. This isn't the first time. The Philippian church is a generous church. And Paul has real needs. He's in chains. He's under house arrest in a small apartment at his own expense, Acts 28, verse 30. He's in the custody of a guard, Acts 28, verse 16. He's allowed to have visitors, Acts 28, verse 17, but in all likelihood, he's not having many visitors. Not able to work, so he has to exist on a sparse level by the generosity of friends. He doesn't have hardly anything. Epaphroditus shows up. And there is the face of a brother, there is the face of a friend, and there is the face of this kind of material expression of love that isn't the first time that he is known from this church, so that his heart is full of joy. Now, he wants to be sure that we understand his joy. He doesn't just recall this joy, he identifies it. What kind of joy is it? 
First of all, it's joy in the Lord. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. It's a joy that he knows in the context of his relationship with Christ and their relationship with Christ. It exists in the gospel. It's gospel joy. It exists in salvation. It's salvation's joy. It exists in the context of God working. You see God do something and your heart is full of joy. He showed up and my heart rejoiced in the Lord and not some small joy. My heart was full of joy. I rejoiced greatly. Joy in the Lord. Joy in a renewed relationship. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived. Thinking about me. That word revived is a Greek word that was used in the world of growing plants and trees and that sort of thing. A horticultural term. It's used only here in the New Testament. It means literally to bloom again or to grow again. So if you imagine a tree, for example, going dormant during the winter and then spring arrives and it begins to bud and seems to just come to life again. That's the sort of picture he's giving us here. This was the blooming again of what I've known from you before. It is a reconnection, a renewed partnership in the gospel, a new, fresh expression of spiritual friendship and fellowship. So that it was joy in a new opportunity, a new opportunity. Now at last, he says, you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. He doesn't want them to be confused like he's saying, you know what, you thought about me, then you forgot about me, and now you've remembered me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you've thought about me all along, but now your ability, your opportunity to help me and my need have met together. God is working on your end in such a way that though the desire has been there all along, now you have opportunity and ability to give me help right at this moment when I especially needed help. So he is delighting in God's work that brought their willingness together with his need. He declares his joy. He declares his joy. Second point, Paul's joy declared, that's point number one, Paul's joy clarified, clarified, verses 11 through 14. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance in any and all things. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. What is Paul wanting to make clear? He wants to make clear that his rejoicing is not really in the material gift. You brought something to me. You gave something to me. My heart is full of joy. But the joy is not really about the gift itself. Now, why does he want to communicate that? As I said earlier, because he's a teacher. He's wanting to teach some lessons about Christian giving and about Christian receiving and about Christian fellowship, and all of it rests on a lesson about contentment. Very same kind of truth he was teaching to the Corinthian church, but in a different context. The Corinthian church, he's battling there with slander and all sorts of activity that is turning that church against him. 
and he's having to tell them what his heart is toward them. And in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, he says this, Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. And then he says this, For I seek not what is yours, but you. I don't seek what you have. I love you. I care about you. I seek you. I'm not coming to get something from you. I'm coming because I care for you. It goes on to write, for children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. You can't say that. You can't say, I don't really care about what you have. I care about you and mean it unless your motives have been purified by this attitude of contentment. So Paul wants to make clear with the Philippians, I'm not saying what I'm saying because I had this sense of want, because I've learned contentment. So what is contentment? What does it mean? Altarkes is the word. Another example of a few words in this section that you don't find anywhere else. This particular word, along with the corresponding noun that's used in 2 Corinthians 9.8, carries the meaning to be self-sufficient. If just look at the word itself, what is, what, what is the meaning in the word? It speaks of a certain kind of independence. Self-sufficient. The pagans used it. The Stoics would use it. To speak of arriving at a place of absolute indifference. Doesn't matter what happens. Doesn't matter what my circumstances are. I have disciplined myself not to care. That's the idea. I've disciplined myself not to care. They would say, if I have a lot, if I have a little, I'm in the same place because I've taught myself not to care. This is fate. This is just the way it is. Nothing is gained by battling with it. So I just surrender to my circumstances. That is not what Paul was talking about. That's how a pagan would have thought about contentment. And you know what, what's scary? I think that's how a lot of Christians think about contentment. Like, you know what, you can't change it, so you just submit to it. I've learned, you know, I've, I've been preaching to myself just not to care. I've just told myself it doesn't matter. That is not contentment. William Hendrickson, I love what he said. He said, he, that is Paul, is no stoic who, trusting in his own resources and supposedly unmoved by either joy or grief, endeavors with all his might to submit without complaining to unavoidable necessity. The apostle is no statue. He is a man of flesh and blood. He knows both joys and sorrows, yet is content. But his contentment has its cause in one other than himself. I know joy, I know sorrow, I know what it is to struggle with my circumstances, yet I know contentment, and the explanation for it is not found in me, but in someone who helps me, who teaches me. So if we want to understand this term, you've got to do more than just look at a dictionary. Look at how Paul uses it. What is the Christian understanding of contentment? Well, notice how he characterizes it. We have several characterizations in our verses. First of all, we can say this, contentment rests in God's providence. 
This is what Paul is doing in verse 10, talking about how the circumstances work together to bring them to this moment. You've been thinking about me all along, but now has been the time when your ability and your willingness have met together with my need. And Paul sees that as the hand of God, because it is. Christian love and concern meeting together with God-given opportunity. He understands this because he understands the sovereignty of God. Let me say this, you will never be a contented person if you don't fully believe in the sovereignty of God. You are not where you are by accident. Your circumstances are not what they are incidentally, accidentally. You are where you are by God's design. That even includes things that are not pleasant. That even includes things that are wrong. I'm not saying that, for instance, if someone is suffering today at the hands of another person, I'm not saying that God delights in the way they're treating you. What I am saying is God has the ability to remove that in an instant. So that if you're dealing with it, there's something that God is doing in your life because He loves you, He knows you perfectly, He is sovereign over every circumstance of your life. If there was any other thing that would be be better for you at this moment, you would have it. Because that's God's love toward His children. So wherever you are, God is sovereignly at work through His providences doing something good and Christ-honoring in your life. You believe that? If you do, would you say amen? God is sovereign over our circumstances. And contentment knows that and believes that. Contentment believes that God knows what is best for us and what is best for us cannot be defined materially. This is how we're prone to think. How can it be best for me to be struggling financially? How can it be best for me to sometimes not have what I think are the basic necessities? How could this be best for me to be experiencing all the pressure and the trouble that goes along sometimes with difficult circumstances? How could this be best for me? Here's what you've got to realize. What is best for you is not what is most pleasant, materially speaking. What is best for you is what makes for the best in your soul. What is best for you is holiness. What is best for you is Christ-likeness. God will never love you more than to put you in circumstances that will be at work forming you into the image of His Son. Which is why we can pray, like you read in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 8, which says, Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. God, you know what I need. You know what's best for me. So don't give me too much where I would fail you. Don't give me too little where you knowing my weakness would fail you. Give me what you know is best for my soul. This is what characterizes Christian contentment. We rest, we rest, we're at rest in the knowledge of God's sovereignty. Second, contentment can be satisfied with God when you have little. Contentment can be satisfied with God when you have little. Verse 11, not that I speak from want. My words are not flowing out of a sense of want. 
For I learn to be content in whatever circumstances I am. The rest that you find in contentment is explained by the riches identified in contentment. Your treasures will dictate whether or not you can have rest when you have little. If your treasure is God Himself, if you recognize the greatest gift God ever gave you is Himself, that you are infinitely rich by virtue of salvation, then even when you have little in the material realm, you are the richest person on the face of the earth. And you know that, and you believe that, and you feel that. I'm not speaking according to need, Paul says, which is interesting because in the very next verse, verse 12, he acknowledges that he has needs. Into verse 12, both of having abundance and suffering need. So here's what he's saying. Even when I have needs, I don't feel needy. Even when I have needs, I don't feel deprived. Having the Lord, he had all that he needed, even when he had unmet needs. And this is a man writing in a condition where he has minimum supplies. He has a prison's provisions, a prison's comforts, a prison's pleasures. Yet he says he didn't have a sense of need. He says he's learned this over time. For I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. One writer says of this word translated learned. Emathon is the word. He writes this, Have learned is constantive, used here for linear actions that having been completed are regarded as a whole. It implies that Paul's whole experience up to the present, especially as a Christian, has been a schooling whose lessons he has not failed to master. In other words, I've been learning this my whole life. Through all of the roads the Lord has led me down, through all the circumstances I've walked through, through all of my life experiences, this is what the Lord has been teaching me, that my contentment is not found in my circumstances, it's found in my God so that you can be content when you have little. Third, contentment is to be free from the tyranny of circumstances, then isn't it? It's to be free from the tyranny of circumstances. He says in verse 12, in any and every circumstance. It's because he has a faithful teacher. He uses another word for learned. In verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things I have learned. Different word, this Greek word, has to do with being introduced into a secret. This is not something you do for yourself. This is something done for you. He's saying through all of my varying circumstances, the Lord has brought me into the secret of contentment. He has taught my heart to have its rest in Him. And he gives three pairs of comparisons. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance. I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. Three pairs of comparisons, each on the, spec on the other end of the spectrum. One having a lot, the other having little. So that what he's saying is, God teaches us 
through circumstances, not to be ruled by circumstances. God brings us through a variety of circumstances, some representing abundance, some representing lack. He carries us through it all to teach us that our life is not dictated by our circumstances. Our heart finds its satisfaction in God. Circumstances that humble us, circumstances that enrich us. Circumstances that satisfy us physically. I know what it is to be filled, to have a feast. Circumstances that make us aware of physical dissatisfaction. I know what it is to be hungry. Circumstances that represent going over more than we thought. Circumstances that represent falling short of what we expected. In all of it, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Quick thought. He mentions both ends of the spectrum. Do you realize you need contentment when you have abundance, just like you need contentment when you have little? He's learned it in both sets of circumstances. It takes grace to be content with God alone when you're in a circumstance of plenty. That is, even when it's going great and when you have everything you ever could have expected, you don't set your heart on that. You keep your heart fixed on Him. So that if they took all of that away, your heart satisfaction hasn't changed an ounce. Because it's been fixed on Him the entire time. This is why Paul is able to say, I so rejoice, but it's not really in the gift. Because the gift hasn't changed where my heart finds its satisfaction. I rejoice over what the gift represents. Your love for me, God's work for you, His providence, His sovereignty that has brought all this together. That's what I'm rejoicing in. Not the gift, but the ultimate giver and the givers He's used to meet the need. John Chrysostom said this, he said, but says one, there is no need of wisdom or of virtue in order to abound. Right? I mean, you don't need grace to abound, do you? Chrysostom goes on to say this, there's great need of virtue, not less than in the other case, for as want inclines us to do many evil things, so does plenty. For many oftentimes coming into plenty, many oftentimes coming into plenty have become indolent and have not known how to bear their good fortune. You come into plenty and you become spiritually lax. You become spiritually lazy. Can anybody here testify that your problems help your prayer life? Amen? When do you find yourself on your knees? But when you know, you sense you have need. So we have to fight to keep our hearts fixed on God in the hours of plenty, just like we do in the hours of want. Contentment. Rest in God's providence. Contentment, satisfied with God when I have little. Contentment, free from the tyranny of circumstances. Circumstances don't dictate my life. My heart is set on Christ. Fourth, contentment has its source in Christ Himself. Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He didn't say I can do this because I'm so self-disciplined. I can do this because I've learned this method in my mind of what to think about and how to think about it and all those, that sort of thing. 
He says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Literally, all things I am able to do by the One who strengthens me. To be satisfied in Christ means I'm being strengthened in Christ. It is Christ's power that allows me to have a God-honoring attitude. It is Christ's power that allows me to say, I have enough. There's nothing too difficult for God, therefore there's no circumstance that Paul can't be content in. Because the power of God is always enough for any circumstance we face. This is a contentment that comes directly from the sufficiency of Christ and directly out of fellowship with Christ. Is your heart struggling for satisfaction? Then run to the Son of God Himself and realize He has everything you need for your current circumstance. And He is the one who is the answer for everything you need. It's out of fellowship with Him that you find the power to honor God no matter what your circumstances are. Fifth thing you see about contentment here is that it's knowing true gratefulness for all God's benefits. Knowing true gratefulness for all God's benefits. Verse 14, Nevertheless, you've done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. I'm not rejoicing over the gift, but you did good. I'm not rejoicing over the gift itself, but I give God thanks for it. True contentment doesn't make you ungrateful. You know, well, I have Jesus, I have all I need, so you did this for me, and I don't really pay much attention to it. That's not what Paul is doing. In fact, he's paying a lot of attention to it. But his motives are pure. His heart is not wrapped up in the gift. It's wrapped up in Christ and Christ's work in and through them. That's the right perspective. And what this means is even the smallest kindnesses or the greatest sacrifices turn our heart toward God and pour out in thanksgiving and appreciation toward the instruments that God uses to meet our needs. Now, imagine a church full of such people. Imagine a church that rests in God's providence. A church that trust the sovereignty of God in all of our circumstances. You know what's good for me? I don't think I have to imagine such a church. I think I've seen such a church. We're in a gym, aren't we? Been here for a long time, haven't we? And I haven't sensed any lack of joy. I haven't heard any grumbling. Where did we learn that from? We learned it from the Word of God, haven't we? We've learned it from a belief in the sovereignty of God, haven't we? Imagine a church that rests in the sovereignty of God. Imagine a church that is satisfied in God even when it has little. We're blessed. We have abundance. But there are congregations all over this world that are struggling with the bare necessities. But we know this for our brothers and sisters. They have everything they need to have holy joy right there in circumstances of want because they have Christ. They have Christ. Imagine a church that isn't tossed about by its circumstances isn't tossed about by the varying seasons of its life and ministry. Stays the same, no matter what's going on within it and outside of it. Imagine a church that finds its strength in its head. All this flows out of not only the sufficiency of Christ, but as we fellowship with Christ. 
Imagine a church that is so continually aware of its blessings that it is full of thanksgiving and praise and joy and smiles because no matter what is going on in our lives, we are the most blessed people on the face of the planet. And we know it. Imagine a church made up of contented believers. What will be their confession? What will be their attitude? What will be their voice of worship? One text that I think gives voice to what you find in such a church is Psalm 73, verse 23 and following. Listen to what it says. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. The psalmist says, Lord, I'm always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And I love this, and my portion forever. God, you are my gift. You are my portion. And you're my portion, not just now. You're my portion for forever. You'll be my portion as much in heaven as you are on earth. So that I have no one in heaven but you, and there's nothing I want on earth but you. You are my portion. So before I pray, can I just ask you, let's bring it down to the individual level. A God-glorifying church, a Christ-glorifying church would be a contented church, but that's one believer at a time. So we need to draw a circle around me and around you. Can I ask you, what is happening in your life right now where your contentment is being challenged? What is going on in your life this morning where your contentment is being challenged. Wherever that is, I want to ask you, are you looking at your circumstances from an eternal point of view? What will this produce that is good for my soul? So that you are trusting in God's sovereignty over your life. Are you trusting this is providential? God is at work in it. And do you know what it is to care more for God's glory than for your comfort? How is Paul able to rejoice in a prison? How do you write this from a prison? Because he cares more about God's glory than he does his own self, his own comfort. Most of our grumbling flows out of a desire for more comfort. More comfortable circumstances, more comfortable relationships, more comfortable, whatever the case may be. Do you care more about God's glory, His work in your soul and through you to other people than you do about your comfort? In fact, are you aware of other people? This is what happens to us sometimes when our contentment is being challenged. We just turn inward. We think about us. We think about our pain. We think about our Difficulty. We think about the things challenging our contentment when the best thing for our soul is to look up and then to look outward. God, I want this season testing my contentment 
to be a season for investment. Let me out of my struggle invest in the lives of other people. Let your comfort to me become a comfort to others through me. So that finally I would ask, will you ask God to help you learn this? Will you ask the Lord to help you learn what He is certainly teaching you through all of life's circumstances to have your heart rest in Him? Because that's where Christ is exalted. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for this work You do in our souls. Forgive us for we fall prey to idolatry. We want something more even when it's not something forbidden. So often it's something that is forbidden in the sense that You didn't ordain it for us. You haven't given it to us. So would You help us, Lord, to be content with what You've given us in any and every circumstance to find our heart at rest in Jesus. To know we are the most blessed people on the face of the earth because we have You through Your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.